Well, good morning again. My name is Dave Dorst. I am a pastor here, not a deacon. <laughs> I'd love to have you on staff anytime, John. Just let us know. If you have your bulletin outline, you can follow along. One list on the internet ranked the top things that people complain about. Probably a few rankings. I found mine on sharerranks.com. The top few that they listed are school, the weather, jobs, foreigners stealing our jobs, being hungry, slow internet, being overweight, and the best one, too many people complaining. (laughs) Maybe an underlying issue for a lot of the things that we complain about is I can't control everything around me. People don't do what I want them to. I don't always get my way outside my house, even sometimes in my house. The systems and institutions that I have to live with don't completely cater to me. So I'm going to complain. And maybe we as Christians have a deeper complaint that we don't often voice, but we may be thinking that God has let us down. That God was not there when I needed him. God did not do what I needed him to do for me. Well, join me today in Exodus chapter 17. In recent weeks, we've read Exodus 15 and 16, and and we saw the Israelites grumbling and complaining after a miraculous rescue mission from the Lord. Well, they're out in the wilderness now where God had led them. And so they grumble and complain for different things. And God, we saw, provided miraculously. He gave them the bread of the angels, is what Psalms calls it, the manna that fell from the sky every day. What an amazing provision. So, of course, they quit complaining, right? Not exactly. Let's, let's read Exodus 17, 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, 
What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Lord God, meet us in our time of need, as we know you do. Give us insight into this passage, into all of the passages that we're going to look at today. Speak to our hearts and challenge us in our grumbling in Jesus' name, amen. Now, there is a similar story in Numbers chapter 20. I don't want you to be confused. Um, where Moses is commanded to strike a rock, and he strikes it twice. Do you remember? And the Lord actually punishes him and keeps him from entering the promised land because of that act of disobedience. Uh, but that's a completely different story that happens many years after Sinai they're heading to. Different context, different lesson here. And I want to start, as we look at this passage, by looking at the names of the places in this story. Because often the names can give us clues as to why the writer included the story. And so keep in mind that this is definitely a historical account but Moses is writing selective history, which means that he could have written thousands of incidents, right, that happened throughout their wilderness wanderings, but he selected specific ones for good reasons. So the first name we see as they come here is Rephidim. It's the original name of the place where Israel stops. Rephidim means resting place which seems appropriate as the Israelites had come to camp there. But it's ironically not a place of rest for anyone, leader or people. It's hard to rest when you're miserable. Now ultimately, this points ahead that ultimate rest for the Israelites is going to be found in the promised land. But even then, even there, they will be threatened by tribes, by enemies that they have disobeyed God by not driving out. So we find out that the place becomes different names. First one is Massa, from the Hebrew word Nasah, meaning to test, to try, or to tempt. Deuteronomy 6, 16 and 17 says, 
you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah, right? Referring to this very incident. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. We are not to test God. God tests us. Genesis 22 says that God was testing Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his son. And in fact, the entire wilderness experience is a bit of a test from God. We've already read it in Exodus 15, 15 and 16. It says, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. The Israelites had turned this situation, which is a time of God testing them and turned it around into a test, their testing God. I want you to contrast that with Jesus' time in the wilderness. It's no coincidence that Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness, mirroring the Israelites, what? 40 years. And Jesus is fasting. And he's tired, and he's being strongly tempted by Satan. But does he disobey? Does he grumble and argue? No, he quotes scripture. One of them is the very one above. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus passes his test and does not test God in return. The other name given this place is Meribah, which means to strive, to argue. It also could mean dissatisfaction. The writer of Hebrews interprets it to mean rebellion. It's one thing to disobey and test God's provision and God's character. It's another thing entirely to confront him and, or his representative, Moses, to actively rebel, which is what Israel has done. Notice how Psalm 95, verses 8 and 9, speaks of these names. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. The scriptures keep pointing back to this very incident. What grieves the Lord that they had seen his work, all the miracles and wonders? I mean, he had just given them manna from the sky. Out of nowhere comes this abundant, perfect supply of food that's going to continue for 40 years. And they still question his faithfulness his goodness, his fatherly care. And they're ready to stone 
Moses over this. So Moses turns to God and cries out, what do I do? God answers, see that rock over there? I'll go stand there. You bring some elders, you bring your staff, hit the rock, and you'll have your water. That's a picture of grace. There are at least three explanations for why God would stand. I think on top of the rock is the picture. First one, maybe it's just to mark to Moses to let him know which rock it is. Maybe there were a few, possibly. Um, Maybe it was so that it would show that he was doing the miracle, not that the rock or Moses have the power. But I think a deeper explanation may be in order. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say this, but there's a strong case to be made that God is setting himself up to be judged by the people and actually taking the punishment of those who are trying him by being struck by the rod, by the staff. In case you think I made that up, R.C. Sproul, good authority. This Table Talk magazine put it this way. God told Moses to go to the rock of Horeb and to smite the rock. God himself would stand on the rock and be identified with it. God would stand before the people. The judicial language is strong here. God would take the place of the accused and receive the punishment of the rod. Now, Exodus 16, the the manna chapter, had been an image of Christ's incarnation. The manna from heaven, a foreshadowing that Christ will be the bread of life given for us and our daily nourishment. Now, Exodus 17 is an image of Christ's crucifixion. We're reminded of the words of Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. With his stripes, we are healed. God was giving a picture, a visual. When you need deliverance, I will be struck. Christ is the rock that is wounded for us and pours out blessings because of that. 1 Corinthians 10.4 says very explicitly, they drank from the spiritual rock and the rock was Christ. So what can we learn from this specific Passage. These seven verses about the Massah testing, the Meribah rebellion incident. Well, number one, don't stone your pastor when things are crumbling around you. He may be able to help. Or hypothetically, if he forgot to order the palms on Palm Sunday, don't get mad at him. The people 
were ready to turn on Moses. And yet, what is he but their deliverer? A gift from God. Now, maybe we include all of your authority figures here that turning on your parents, the government, your teachers, whoever it is, it's easy to strike out at them when things aren't going your way, but they may be there to help. Now, the flip side of this is advice to pastors, spiritual leaders, parents, anyone in authority. When your people attack or complain about you, take it to the Lord. Sure, listen to their criticism, answer them, work towards a solution, but don't carry that burden. Seek the Lord. Number two, when we complain about our lives, it just shows our ingratitude and our lack of faith. God has shown himself just as faithful in your life, in my life, as in the lives of the Israelites. Maybe it's not as spectacular or obvious as the crossing of the Red Sea. But every good thing in your life has not only been allowed and ordained by God, but given by Him. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Can we learn from the Israelites' ingratitude when God had just supplied them with this miraculous source of food? As, as soon as they get thirsty, they start threatening rather than praying and asking their great provider John Calvin said, as soon as anything occurs contrary to the wishes of one who distrusts God, he has recourse to murmuring and dispute. Beloved, break that pattern in your life if it's there. Show those around you that your faith in God is not just theoretical and academic but that in difficult times, in all times, you trust him. Hebrews 3, 7 through 14 has an amazing passage. The writer of Hebrews reminds us how applicable this wilderness incident is to our lives. Read with me uh, verse 7 through 14. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We'll get there in the story of Exodus. We'll learn all about that. And then sends it right to his readers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 
but exhort one another. Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And number three, we come and we need to come to receive our living water from Christ. In John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus told the woman at the well, and he speaks to us, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the water in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. For those who have never trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, and there may be some of those here, you must know that he was broken and killed for your sake to take your punishment on himself so that you don't have to be punished eternally in hell for your sins. Receive him. Trust in him alone for your salvation and you will be given eternal life. But even for those who already trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, we must see him as the ongoing source for spiritual blessing. When we are distressed and we need help, may we walk to our rock and tap its flowing waters. Find Christ in prayer and ask of him all things. Rick Barron's preached four sermons at our church in the last nine years that he served as a ruling elder. They're all on the website if you want to listen or read them. What are the chances that out of those four sermons, out of all the texts that he could have preached on, that one of them was about the triumphal entry, a Palm Sunday text, like, say, John 12, 12 through 18. Rick preached on that around the time that he became a ruling elder in the summer of 2007. And before I realized that, I, I knew I wanted to tie this Exodus passage in. We're obviously not preaching on the triumphal entry, but I wanted to tie it in because it is Palm Sunday. And I couldn't believe the providence of God that I could just read excerpts from one of Rick's sermons. But first, so first the text. Let's read uh, John 12. It's a few verses. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. 
Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So here are parts of what Rick said in his sermon. John says that Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. Now it was not uncommon for a king to ride a donkey as a symbol of peace. And Jesus' choice of transportation was not by coincidence. He again was fulfilling prophecy. It wasn't until later that John and the other disciples came across the passage in Zechariah 9. And so at the time, they missed him. Now, they must have recognized him somewhat. The palms were the acknowledgement by this crowd that their king was here. They were sure it was him. Right? Palm branches had been used in ceremonies and celebrations for almost 200 years prior to this event. They were considered a symbol of patriotism. As Jesus rode the colt down the mount, we hear the Hosanna. It means save, please, or bring salvation now. And it's actually known as the Conqueror's Psalm, the one sung by Judas Maccabeus when he entered the city and liberated it. And the crowd added their acknowledgement that he is the king of Israel. So why were they shouting such things? Well, more prophecy is fulfilled here. Remember, Zechariah had said, Shout! O daughter of Jerusalem. And such a shout must be made. In the other Gospels, Jesus confronted by the Pharisees and he was told to quiet the crowd, but he declared that if the multitudes had failed to shout, the prophecy still would have been fulfilled. The very stones would have cried out. These shouts of Hosanna and the palm branches waved was an indication that they were expecting their king to rule over Jerusalem. They were expecting him to save them from Rome and not from their sins. So they missed him. John points out that Jesus' disciples were oblivious to any of these signs at the time. It was only later, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were able to recognize any of them. Yet Jesus knew what he was doing. Here he was riding on a donkey, accepting the praise of the crowd, in essence, admitting to the world that he was the king of Israel. And yet, they missed him. All of these things, the prophecy, the symbolism, point to one thing. The God of the universe was in their midst, and he had a plan. The crowd was thinking he'd take over, but instead... He would submit. The greatest symbol of his love was yet to come. This happened at Passover, and it's time for the Passover lamb to be slain for the atonement of sins. Plain and simple, Jesus of Nazareth had heard their Hosanna. He had come to save them, but they couldn't see past their, past their physical needs for deliverance from the Romans. They expected him to meet their temporal need. They were so blinded by their own sin that they couldn't see their need to be saved 
from their sin for all eternity. They couldn't see that every sacrifice offered in the temple from Moses to this very Passover was inadequate for their redemption. They couldn't see that every atonement sacrifice was a foreshadowing of what their Messiah was about to do for them. Thank you, Rick, for those words. Let me bring this together. The Israelites in the day, in the desert, in Moses' day, the Israelites in Jerusalem, in Jesus' day, on that Palm Sunday, they all had physical needs. And so they demanded physical salvation from their God. And what God offers them is himself. He offers them Jesus, who entered Jerusalem knowing that it was the last week of his life, knowing that he would be arrested, put on trial, falsely condemned, beaten, whipped, and finally hung on a cross to die. In the eyes of those putting him to death, he died because he challenged the political and religious authorities, but God had such a deeper reason for putting Jesus to death. To die in the place of his people. To offer satisfaction for God's wrath that their sins deserve, but that only he, the perfect one, could atone for. He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. He was struck down so that from him streams of living water for salvation and for our daily needs would flow. And all who would drink from that living water said, Amen. Take a minute to pray. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you every year that we celebrate Holy Week, starting with Palm Sunday, when it seemed that people were behind Jesus, that they praised him, that they wanted him to be their king. And yet, by Friday, they're calling for his death. And yet, even in that, you used all of that in your great plan of redemption for us. You sent Jesus to the cross, even if it was Pilate, even if it was the Pharisees, the Romans, even if they pronounced the sentence and hammered the nails, you sent Jesus to the cross for us in our place. And still, 
we are like the Israelites who grumble and complain and forget how great our salvation truly is. May we rest on you alone. May we cry out to you in our needs, in our time of hurting, in our grieving. And may we receive the living water from Christ. Amen.